We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. It is a delight to be invited to speak uh, with you this morning. Uh, I am especially delighted that uh, my brother and good friend Mark is well enough to be worshiping here with us um, and his family. I made the psychological error of listening to uh, Dr. Arthur's message from last week. Um, An error because I began to compare myself unfavorably uh, with all the respected and august uh, men who have stood in this place where I am at present. Uh, Moreover, uh, our two churches are quite different. Uh, Symphony is different in size, in demographic, in uh, tradition, and certainly we don't have anywhere near the history uh, that Park Street does. Um, At the same time, we worship the same Jesus, and we're loved by the same Father, and we're empowered by the same Holy Spirit to be partners in the gospel together. Amen? I'd like to uh, reread one verse from today's readings, um, Esther chapter 9, verse 1. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on that very same day, when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. In many ways, this is the climactic moment in the book of Esther. And to really understand how climactic this is, I'd like to briefly remind you of the events leading up to this verse. The book of Esther is set after the time of the exile. If you remember Ezra and Nehemiah, some of the Jewish people were able to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. But many stayed in what by then was the Persian Empire. In Esther 1, the king of the Persian Empire, Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus, throws a huge party to show off his riches and power, an all-you-can-eat, all-you-can-drink kind of party, which lasts many, many days. King Xerxes hosts a party for the men, and Queen Vashti hosts a party for the women. And at some point in the festivities, Xerxes wants to show off his wife, Queen Vashti, who is known, renowned to be beautiful to the men. Now, this may be difficult for us to understand, but in those days, men were valued for their power and their riches, and women were valued for their physical beauty. Aren't you glad we don't live in such a culture today? (laughs) Anyways, Queen Vashti, for whatever reason, refuses to obey the king's orders. She doesn't want to be paraded in front of the men. And this does not end well for her. In in his rage, King Xerxes removes her as queen and sends her away. But then when he sobers up, he finds that he misses his queen. And at this point, the court advisors 
suggests that he hold a competition. All the beautiful unmarried women in the empire are brought to the capital city, Susa. They're each given 12 months of beauty treatments, and then they will spend one night with the king. And out of the thousands, he will pick some to be concubines and one to become his queen. And one of the contestants is a young Jewish orphan named Esther, who's been raised and adopted by her cousin Mordecai, who works at the city gate. Now, Esther is described as a very compliant, obedient woman who does everything that her uncle asks, who does everything that Haggai, the, the eunuch in charge of the king's harem, advises. And in the end, King Xerxes loves Esther more than any of the others, and he decides that she will be his queen. Now, after this happens, a man named Haman becomes the favorite official of the king, and he's promoted to his right hand. And Haman is the primary villain in this story. We see that while the king really likes Haman, Haman is this arrogant, proud, petty man who lives for the admiration of others. Everyone is supposed to bow down and pay homage to him. But Mordecai does not. And when people ask Mordecai why he won't bow, he explains that it's because he's a Jew. And Haman, in a fury, doesn't want Mordecai, only Mordecai punished. Um, he wants him dead and all the Jewish people along with him. By the way, aren't you glad that we no longer live in a society that judges whole groups of people based on our experience with just one? <laughs> Haman is able to convince King Xerxes that the empire would be economically better off, and King Xerxes himself the primary beneficiary, if the Jewish people were no longer around to cause trouble, that their assets could be seized for the good of the empire. And the king says yes. And so with the king's authority, on the 13th day of the first month, Haman issues a command, an edict, see Esther 3.13, that in exactly 11 months, all Jews, young and old, women and children, are to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated, their goods plundered. Now Esther actually doesn't know what is happening here. She's in the queen's portion of the palace, isolated from the current affairs of the empire. But Mordecai, her cousin, does know, and he's able to communicate to her what has been happening. And he asks her to plead with the king, her husband, for the Jewish people. And naturally, Esther immediately goes to the king, tells him what the consequence of this new edict will be, and he's horrified that he's just ordered the effective execution of his beloved wife, and so he cancels the edict and punishes Haman. The end. Of course, that's not actually how it goes. When she receives Mordecai's plea, she responds, you don't understand what a difficult thing you're asking me to do. And she explains that no one, including her, is allowed to enter Xerxes' inner court without permission. If they do, they're executed, unless the king decides to throw them a lifeline and holds his scepter out to them. But the king hasn't called on Esther in a month. Imagine not seeing your husband for a month while living in the same palace. And so she's not sure how he feels about her anymore. Esther would like to help you understand. But it's this incredibly risky thing that she's being asked to do. Now, what's going on here? Esther has made it in life. Uh, she's made it in life about as far and as high as a woman could go in that time. But 
She's still insecure, and she's afraid. Esther has excelled at getting beauty treatments and looking beautiful, but she finds herself unprepared to be a major player in Persian politics. She has much to lose. And when confronted with doing the right thing, she weighs it against everything that she might lose, since she's embedded into the system and power structure of her day. A note to the younger ones among us. Don't expect to feel more secure the farther you go, the road of status and wealth and privilege, the more enmeshed you get into the power structures of this world. In fact, you may feel more insecure, because now you have more to lose. I think her being a queen notwithstanding, I think we can relate to Esther. I'd love to share the gospel with those around me, but then they might think I'm pushy or weird or aggressive or inappropriate. I'd love to work for the flourishing of all people, but then I might have to give up my own dreams of flourishing. I'd love to spend more time with God and to serve him, but then I would have less time for myself. Esther is not actually being completely rational here, and Mordecai will point this out, but neither are we, if we're honest. He says to her, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Now he's telling her three things. First, Esther, you are still a Jew. Judgment is coming for you whether you'd like to pretend it impacts you or not. He explains that if all the Jews are killed, well, she'll be sniffed out, and she'll be killed too. And if the Jews aren't killed, then she will also still be sniffed out, and now she'll be a traitor. Either way, Esther loses if she stays silent. Second, he says, but in the end, the Jewish people will be saved one way or another. And Esther, you can either be part of the plan or forfeit your right to participate. Now, all this is somewhat blunt and harsh, so he adds an encouragement at the end. He says, and many of you know this verse well, and who knows whether you have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Might this not be your destiny for such a time as this. This may be your kairos moment. That's the Greek word for time, meaning appointed time. Mordecai is saying, Esther, this might be why you exist, what you were born for, all the circumstances of your life leading up to this moment and action. And then Esther responds, chapter 4, verse 16, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. This is why Esther is the hero of the story. Nothing Esther has done so far has really been that heroic. Winning an empire-wide beauty pageant doesn't make her heroic. Capitulating and conforming to the social conventions of her day over and against her own faith doesn't make her a hero. She's not 
so far a Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, or Abednego standing up against the customs of the empire saying, our God will save us, but even if not, we will not bow down. Now Mordecai has a lot of that in him, but so far we haven't seen it in Esther. So far we've just seen her going with the flow. She does what Mordecai asks. She does what the king asks. She does what society tells her she should do. For 12 months, she submitted to the beauty treatment. She was shaped by what Persian culture said beauty was. She sleeps with the king before she was married. I didn't talk about that earlier, but it was implied. And when she learns about the injustice being perpetuated by her husband, she's silent. So far, Esther has been passive, conforming to the world and the culture around her. But now is her kairos moment. If I perish I perish. One commentator points out there are 14 times in the book that Esther is called Queen Esther, and 13 of those times come after this point in the book. This is where Esther becomes a true queen. You are not truly yourself if you're shying away from your kairos. Now, I won't give you the play-by-play for what happens next. Esther does go to the king. He doesn't kill her. Instead, she has this marvelous plan of drawing and stimulating the king's interest as to why she wants to meet with him until she makes the big reveal. Haman's plan will end in the annihilation of my people and myself. Right? And so Haman is then hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. His family is annihilated. Mordecai is elevated, and the Jewish people are saved. In the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews occurred, a hope to grant, gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The reverse occurred. You see, our God is a God of reverses. Now, in the time I have left, I want to point out three things that we can learn from God, uh, learn about God from Esther. First, God is sovereign. Can you turn to your neighbor and tell them God is sovereign? Now, one thing you may have noticed in my recounting of the story of Esther is that I didn't actually talk about God that much. In fact, the book of Esther is famous, among other things, for being the only book in the Bible where the name of God, God himself, is never mentioned. What is going on here? Why is God missing from the book of Esther? Have any of you seen the movie Spider-Man Enters the Spider-Verse? The main character, Miles Morales, is at this elite boarding school that he hates and he's trying to fail out of. And so in his physics class, he takes a test that is true-false, and he gets zero out of 100. And the teacher brings him in and shows him his score. And Miles sees the score and says, oh, a zero. A few more of those, and you're probably going to have to kick me out, huh? Maybe I'm just not right for this school. And his teacher replies, if a person wearing a blindfold picked the answers on a true-false quiz at random, do you know what score they would get? And without thinking, he says 50%. And she says, that's right. The only way to get all the answers wrong is to know which answers were right. You're trying to quit, and I'm not going to let you. And she changes his score to 100%. Pretty smart teacher. 
Now, God is conspicuous in his absence in the book of Esther. God is conspicuous in his absence. God is everywhere in the book of Esther, but he's never mentioned, even in obvious situations where God should be mentioned. For example, when Mordecai chooses not to bow to Haman and explains that he's a Jew, it's against his religious practice, or when he puts on sackcloth and mourns, or when Mordecai says, for such a time as this, or when Esther calls for a fast. Now, why is God missing? Of course, it's intentional. It's a rhetorical device. What is the author telling us? Well, the author is telling us that God is everywhere even when you don't see him. God is in the ordinary as much as he's in the extraordinary. God is in the difficult times as much, perhaps more, than in the good times. You know, there aren't any majorly overt supernatural miracles here in Esther, but God is clearly at work because God is sovereign. And Tim Keller calls this the silent sovereignty of God. God is always at work, even when he seems silent, or even when his name is not mentioned, or even when he's not being directly attributed to as the mover or worker. Now, we may not give God credit, but God is still doing the work. We may not give God praise, but God is still praiseworthy. And God is working. And we can either join in on his plans and his work, or we can passively watch as he works around us, but not through us or in us. God is sovereign. He's in control. Who knows whether God has led you and blessed you and orchestrated the circumstances and the people in your life around you, both good and bad, for such a time as this. Who knows whether you've been placed in your job or your family or your school, also that God's sovereign plan for salvation and redemption and justice would advance. So the first thing I want to say about God from Esther is that he is sovereign. The second, we learn that God is holy and just. Tell your other neighbor, God is holy and just. Another reason I think God's name is intentionally not mentioned by the author is that he is holy. It's too holy to be named. Now, holy means that God is high and above us. What that means is that he's not like you or me. His love is not like your love or my love. His forgiveness is not like your love. I'm sorry, your forgiveness or my forgiveness. His power is not like your power or my power. And his compassion and sense of justice is not like your, power, your sense of compassion and justice or mine. It's off the charts. It's beyond our imagination. And that's good news or bad news depending on your perspective. It's bad news for Haman. It was good news for the Jewish people. You see, what we see played out in the book of Esther will be played out in cosmic history. One day there will be a reversal. Those who were exalted will be brought down. Those who have humbled themselves will be lifted up. As both James and Peter tell us, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Mary, 
mother of Jesus, when she's told that she's about to give birth to the Son of God, she launches into a song of praise. And this is part of her song that we read earlier. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Now Haman, in his pride, and his haughtiness, and in his power, looks to destroy the people of God. But Haman versus God. Whose will do you think will prevail? Tim Keller also points out that many of us worry because we think God is like us. That he isn't actually sovereign, and we forget that he is holy. And so we think, you know, God isn't handling this very well. He's not running my life very well. I think I could run it better. But God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is sovereign, and he is holy. And I want to tell you that ultimately, that is very good news for us, because the third thing I want to tell you about God from Esther is that he is the God of great reversals. Say, great reversals. Esther was passive and fearful and conforming to the world, walking counter to her faith, and then the reverse happens. Haman builds a 75-foot-tall gallows upon which he intends to hang Mordecai. But then the reverse happens. Haman plots the demise of the entire Jewish people, but then the reverse happens. You see, our God is a God of great Reverses, And just so you're not confused, this is the good news. Our God is a God of reverses. He took a young prisoner sold into slavery by his brothers and made him the prime minister of Egypt, the vehicle of salvation for his family. Why? Because he's the God of reverses. A young boy named David is up against a giant named Goliath. David's in trouble. He tries to put on King Saul's armor, but Saul's a 52 long and David's a 36 short. You can't even handle a grown-up sword. To use the language of my sons, GG. Good game. In the eyes of everyone, the game is up. Everyone except David, because he knows a God of reverses. A man named Daniel got thrown into a den of lions because he refused to stop praying to his God. The lions were hungry. He was in there all night. The first light of dawn... King Darius calls down. Daniel tells him he's fine. Why? Because our God is a God of reverses. A man named Moses convinces a nation of oppressed slaves to run away from the most powerful man on earth, and Pharaoh sets out after them. They're standing on the shore with the Red Sea in front of them, the greatest army in the world behind them. And the people say to Moses, Moses, what were you thinking? And Moses says to God, God, what were you thinking? But our God is a God of reverses. This is our Easter hope. On Good Friday, they tried him and judged him, our Lord and Savior. They whipped him and beat him. They mocked him and scorned him. They hung him on a cross to die. And they laid him low in a tomb to rot, the way that every human body is rotted since death entered into this sorry, dark world. But our God is a God of reverses. You and I, we were all headed towards death. 
which the Bible defines as eternal separation from God. Why? Because we had rebelled against the holy, sovereign God. But then the reverse happened. Because of Jesus, we got life. We deserve shame. But because of Jesus, we get honor. We're victims and victimizers. We break and we're broken, but in Jesus, we get healing. Our God can turn shepherds into kings, fishermen into apostles, tax collectors into philanthropists, persecutors of the church into Apostle Paul's, and Esther's into Queen Esther's. What might he do in us? Because our God is holy and sovereign. Because he is holy and sovereign, he is the God of reverses. Because his love, his grace, his mercy is off the charts. And to those who would make a personal reversal called repentance, he makes the great reversal. Let's pray. Lord, so thankful for you and for your love. So thankful that your love is not like our love. Your forgiveness is not like our forgiveness. You're the one who dies for your enemies. Esther went to King Xerxes saying, if I perish, I perish. But Lord Jesus, you came knowing that you would perish. And Lord, we are grateful that we've been enfolded into your righteousness. Lord, if there is anyone here who needs a great reversal, may you come and speak and move and work in their lives. Lord, for those who feel like their Kairos moment has come and gone, Lord, may they know that in your sovereignty you still have a plan. You haven't given up on any of us. Your mercy endures. Your love endures forever. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.